0: and the scene still etched in the memory of many of us surrounding JFK's assassination. John Jr. was a rich, young man from a ruling family. Perhaps not unlike, in some respects, the young man in Luke chapter 18, around whom our text today focuses. I invite you to turn there with me. We revisit this account in Luke 18, the third time in this summer series, as we look at some of the hard sayings of Jesus. We have already examined the conversation between this rich young ruler and Jesus. And now, as Paul Harvey likes to say, we're going to look at the rest of the story. After the conversation had ended, Mark tells us in his Gospel that Jesus looked at this young man apparently as he was walking away, and he felt a love for him. There was compassion in the heart of Jesus for this young man. And Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor." and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This young man turned away from Jesus. When he heard these words of Jesus, it says that his face fell and he walked away. And yet Jesus loved him. And it was out of his heart of compassion for this young man that he spoke the words that he did in verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Today the message title is Camels and Needles as we think about what Jesus said particularly in verse 25. Here Jesus uses a striking image to state a strong warning not only to the rich but to us all. What did Jesus mean by these words that he used? Attempts have been made through the years to avoid the obvious difficulty in interpreting them. For example, there are some who say that the word camel here really is the Greek word for rope, because the two Greek words for a rope or a cable and the word for camel are very similar in their spelling and in their sound. And so some say that there has been here some textual corruption. And what Jesus really said was that how hard it is for a rope, a cable to go through the eye of a needle. That's easier for us to understand, isn't it, in our Western minds. And yet it's very unlikely that there was any corruption here in the Greek language as Luke was writing it and then as it was recorded and copied in years later. The best of textual criticism tells us that what Jesus really said was, it's hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Recognizing that, there are others who say, well, it's the needle that's the problem. Because what this needle is, they say, is a city gate. And they point to the reality that in some ancient city gates that were very large, there were, in fact, smaller gates that could be accessed when the large gate was already closed for the day. And rather than opening this monstrous gate and all that that would entail, there was simply a door, a small door, by which travelers might enter. F.F. Bruce, uh, the commentator, has this to say regarding this possible explanation. He says, this is a charming explanation of relatively recent date. But there is no evidence that such a subsidiary entrance was called the eye of a needle in biblical times. In other words, there were gates like this, but there is never any evidence in any documents that we have from the ancient world they were ever called the eye of a needle. And so as we think about the meaning of Jesus' words, It's best to conclude that he meant them exactly as they are written for us here, and he meant them literally. It is an example, though, of a figure of speech that we might call hyperbole or exaggeration. Jesus is purposely stating something here that in the mind's eye seems to be absurd and impossible. There is some evidence, in fact, that what Jesus said was a common expression in his day. H.B. Sweet, who is another commentator, in his Gospel and Mark's account says this, To contrast the largest beast of burden known in Palestine with the smallest of artificial apertures is quite in the manner of Christ's proverbial sayings. In other words, what Jesus says here is a typical way of expressing a proverb in uh, his day. Again, F.F. Bruce says, In Jewish rabbinical literature, an elephant passing through the eye of a needle is a figure of speech for sheer impossibility. There is in the Talmud a reference to an elephant passing through the eye of a needle, which seems to arise out of Babylonian culture. And so what Jesus apparently did was to take that expression and exchange the elephant, which was the largest animal known to the Persians, for the camel, which was the largest animal known uh, in the the, uh, area of Palestine. And so we should not be surprised that Jesus would use this expression. It's a rabbinical expression type expression, a proverbial kind of an expression, and Jesus intended for it to be striking, perhaps even with a squeeze of humor in it. And he certainly wanted it to be pointed. Can you imagine in your mind's eye trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle, even a big needle? We're familiar with that that image of a camel getting his nose under the tent, and what happens? Pretty soon the camel is in the tent. That is a, a an expression or an illustration uh, that sometimes is used in our own language and culture. If you've ever seen a camel, you know that uh, when you try to force a camel to do something, you are in for trouble. It would not even be akin to your mother-in-law. A camel is very temperamental. And to cause one of those creatures to try to enter into the eye of a needle would cause all kinds of problems, believe me. So I think that Jesus may have intended this to be a little bit of humor as well. But his point is that it's impossible, or rather it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So you see the parallel Jesus is drawing? We want to go on to that next step now and see what the warning is that Jesus is intending by this hard-to-understand illustration. Jesus puts it this way, that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. One way of saying this, it is hard for those with riches to enter the kingdom of God. Let's think about that idea for a moment. Why is that true? Well, there are lots of reasons, including these, that those who have material possessions are often distracted by them. They become entangled in the concern of preserving their material goods and gaining more. as a result of that entanglement, they are too busy to consider the issues of the soul. In other words, their focus is so on material things that they are completely preoccupied and they miss what are the key issues of life, those that deal with the heart of man. In fact, Jesus tells another story that illustrates this in the 12th chapter of Luke, and I invite you to turn back there and look at it with me. Someone in the crowd that Jesus was talking with said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. We have a family dispute going on here, dispute going on, as two brothers are arguing over the inheritance of the family. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus is here stepping back from being a judge over these kinds of temporal affairs. And he said to them all, in light of what this man had just said in front of them, "'Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, "'for not even when one has an abundance "'does his life consist of his possessions.'" that is the fundamental error of the American culture in the 1990s. A culture that is sold out to the idea that material things consist of the meaning of life. But Jesus says even if you have an abundance of them, that does not form the meaning of life. And so he told them this parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? So here's a man in agribusiness who has a major problem. He has been so successful and has become so productive with his land that he had no place to store the things that he was raising. And he said, this is what I will do. And so he had thought through his potential uh, choices. And he decided, here is the thing that I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. There I will preserve my wealth. There I will keep what my life is all about." And he said to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Your retirement is secure. You have laid up enough money so that you won't have to worry about anything from now and forever. So take your ease, soul. Eat, drink, and be merry, and live in light of the wealth that you have. Enjoy the good life. It's yours to have. But God said to him, You fool. Have you ever noted the times that God calls people fools? It's not very often, but here's one. God spoke to this prosperous, self-centered man who thought that his life was all put together and the meaning of his life was to be found in what he owned, what he possessed. God says, you're a fool because this night, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? He says to this man, tonight you are going to die. And then who is going to look after all of the wealth of your life? And so Jesus concludes, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, he has taken no time to invest in spiritual things in his life. He is impoverished with God. He has no relationship with God because his life has been solely focused on material things. Having looked at that example, let's go back to Luke chapter 18. Here we have another young man who is distracted by his possessions. He is a little different in this way. He wanted to know what he could do to have eternal life. He wanted to know what he could perform, what one thing he might do in addition to all of the other things he had done to have eternal life. And so this young man is better off than the rich farmer who had no thoughts of God at all. Jesus, in response to the young man, knowing his real need and knowing his sense of self-righteousness, basically said to him well keep the commandments if you want to do something to gain eternal life then keep the commandments and jesus listed several of them and the young man said well i've I've done all of these things from my youth the young man was sincere in this his religion had taught him that righteousness was external that the fulfillment of the law was in keeping certain external commands that one would do to prove his righteousness. And if one did these external things in his life, then God would surely accept him. And so he was very sincere in saying, well, I have done all of the external things that the rabbis have told me to do to keep the law. But Jesus knew his heart condition and told him to go and sell what he had thus exposing a heart problem in him. And that heart problem was covetousness, the one command Jesus did not mention when he listed the commands earlier. And so the young man was at a point of decision. Was he going to deal with the sin that was in his heart, in which he now recognized was there, and follow Jesus? Or was he going to turn from it and preserve his possessions? And his crucial decision was the latter. And so although he was better off in one sense than the the rich farmer that Jesus told about, in the end he basically made the same decision. He was distracted by his possessions. Only God knows How many people have missed heaven because they have been distracted by their possessions, their material wealth, and they either took no time for spiritual things, or facing the choice between spiritual things and their possessions, they chose possessions. It's also hard for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God because they trust in their possessions to help them with their problems. Those who are wealthy think that they can solve their problems with their money very often. Their money has often gotten them out of difficulties and they think somehow that this will continue to be true. In a way, I think this is the devil's anesthesia for their souls. It puts them to sleep regarding real-life realities and spiritual realities. So often, having a lot of money gives those who are rich a false sense of security, a sense of being invulnerable. As the accident scene seems to be developing or the accident event seems to be developing regarding JFK Jr., It appears that he made a reckless decision to fly his airplane in conditions for which he was not trained. And in taking that risk, perhaps feeling invulnerable because of who he was and what he had at his disposal, it's very easy for those who are wealthy to fall into that mindset. And so often, those who are rich trust in their possessions. That becomes their God. That becomes what they rely upon to help them in life, and perhaps even in eternity if they stop to think about it at all. It is hard for those who are rich to trust in the Lord to admit their sinfulness and their vulnerability, that they have needs spiritually, and to turn from the preoccupation of their life to submit themselves to his lordship. But when we explain the verse this way, I think we are somehow missing the point and perhaps softening the intent of Jesus' statement. For when Jesus said what he did in verse 25 in using that illustration, he was not merely saying it's hard for the rich to be saved. He is saying it is impossible for him to be saved. Because it's not hard to squeeze a camel into the eye of a needle. That just frankly can't be done. It is impossible to do that. You say, well, did, is that really what Jesus meant? Well, if you look on in the context, I think you'll see that it is. Because when the disciples heard Jesus say this, their response immediately was, well, then who can be saved? Because you see, their thinking as a result of the rabbinic teaching was that those who are rich are already in the kingdom. And that is proof of it. John D. Rockefeller had a similar idea. He made the statement one time that riches are a gift from God that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So often we think that those who are rich obviously are being blessed by God. They must have it together with God. God must be pleased with them somehow. They must be in the kingdom. That was certainly what the average person thought in the Jewish culture. And the disciples thought that. And so when Jesus made this statement, they said, wow! If the rich aren't in the kingdom, then who can be saved? And notice what Jesus said. The things impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus was affirming that it is impossible for man to be saved by his own achievement, by his own works, by his own efforts. It is impossible, not only for the rich, But for the poor and anyone else in between to be saved through their own efforts, their own works, even their own external keeping of the law like this rich young ruler, it's impossible. But God, through grace, can do the impossible. God can save anyone, rich or poor, grace, as a gift, as something that he gives to those who come broken and impoverished of spirit and who believe. This event reminds us that life's most crucial issue is entering the kingdom of God. There's nothing that surpasses that. You and I are not in this world for very long. And when we leave it, after 37 or 38 years, or 87 or 88 years, when we ultimately leave this world, we take nothing of our material gain with us. Two men were talking about a rich man in the town who had died, and one asked the other, well, how much did he leave? And his friend replied, all of it. Have you ever seen a hearse with a trailer hitch? Shrouds do not have pockets in them. You see, the real issue of life is entering the kingdom of God, which in the context here clearly means being saved, having a right relationship with God, entering into the family of God. We also learn from this event that God measures success differently than humans. Because don't we tend to measure an individual's prestige and success in life by how much he possesses? Most human beings think that success is spelled M-O-N-E-Y. And you don't have to be in America to think that. But God says that success belongs to those who enter the kingdom That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Earlier he said, Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. He takes care of the sparrows, and he takes care of the flowers. He will take care of you with regard to material possessions. But make it, he says, the focus of your life The very first thing, the priority of life, to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Another way of saying, entering the kingdom. One who enters the kingdom is one who has found genuine success in life. All the other factors are secondary. Success is coming to know God personally and having eternal life. This event also warns of the danger of materialism. G.K. Chesterton said, to be clever enough to get a great deal of money, one must be stupid enough to want it. We have fallen into that stupidity in our culture. Living for what money buys and permits one to have is self-condemnation. Now, it's not just being rich that's the problem. The problem is one's attitude toward riches. Isn't that right? Because one can have an abundance and have the right attitude toward that abundance, be using it for the kingdom of God, under God's blessing. Or one may be poor and covetous for what he doesn't have and be under condemnation. Materialism is not a belief of those who are rich. It is a belief of those people, regardless of their wealth, who think that the essence of life is found in what one possesses. James writes these strong words, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. I think that these are words that could be written to Americans right now your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten your gold and your silver have rusted their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire and he says this it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure of all times In these eschatological times, in these times of the Lord's coming, in these times of judgment, in these times of God's dealing with mankind, in these last times, it's now that you have so greatly erred in storing up your earthly treasures. He goes on to say, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Those are strong words to all of us who live in this culture because materialism is not just the sin of those who are lost and on their way to hell. Materialism is a sin and a great sin of the people of God. Jimmy Carter said, Someone who's obsessed with making money to the exclusion of other goals in life has likely foregone the possibility of the acceptance in God's kingdom. That's a statement by President Carter I agree with. Jesus, in giving the parable of the soils, warned at one point in there about the deceitfulness of riches and how that can choke out the word in the life of a person. In closing, let's just think for a moment about how camels and needles affect our lives. Let me quote Warren Wiersbe in making this important point again. That possessing riches doesn't keep you out of heaven, but being possessed by riches and trusting in them does. Are you today living for your earthly possessions? Is the focus of your life, your money, preserving it and getting more of it? Are you trusting in your money to get you out of hard places in life to the exclusion of your soul's needs and trusting in the Lord? If so, then camels and needles have something to say to you today. We all need to beware lest our attitude regarding money corrupt our souls. Let me close by telling you about Bill Borden, It's a name that you may not recognize. Bill Borden lived at the turn of the last century, born in 1887. Bill Borden was born into a wealthy and privileged family in Chicago. It was the Borden Milk Company family, which was a big name, especially here in the Midwest in years past. Bill Borden became a Christian at some point in his journey And it was while he was at Yale that God really began to move in his heart. And he decided to go to Princeton Seminary, which he did. And it apparently was there that Samuel Zwimmer greatly influenced his life. Zwimmer was about 20 years older and was a committed and dedicated servant of Christ a man who had the Muslim world upon his heart. And he influenced Bill Borden to give up his life of prestige and wealth, and to go in the name of Jesus Christ to the Muslims, that they might be saved. Zwemer was a product of the student volunteer movement of the 1880s, when the Spirit of God came upon many, many college and university and seminary students, men and women, who dedicated themselves to serve Christ on the mission field. And now Borden was affected by that same zeal. And he faced this hard decision about whether to serve God with his life or to continue in the line of of his family and uh, live for his wealth. And in his case... What he decided he needed to do was to give it all up. And so he gave up and gave away all of his inheritance so that that money would not any longer be an allurement to his soul. And he gave himself to go to the mission field. Now his life is interesting because he left in 1913, 26 years of age to go to Egypt there to study the the culture uh, of the Muslims and to learn Arabic. And while he was there, he caught meningitis and died. And his life seems like a waste, doesn't it? And yet here we are, 80-some years later, talking about the level of commitment of that man and how he was able to turn away from the wealth of his life and his privilege, and his position to serve Jesus Christ, whatever it meant. And his life has touched thousands of people down through the decades. I hope we don't forget men like Bill Borden. Now, God is not necessarily calling you to give up all of your wealth and to go to the mission field. But I can tell you this, with all of my heart, I know that God is telling all of us today that we dare not allow our money to run our lives If we today are living for and trusting in money, then we are condemned.